Welcome to this week's edition of the Niners Nation Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, it's another Womp Womp Wednesday. What did we expect? What? It's the you Patriots. Don't say. I know. That they never came happens. into town. They came into town. Things were close. Things were interesting into the fourth quarter. And then Tom Brady went and did Tom Brady things and said, you know what? Let's go ahead and take over this game. Let's go ahead and win. Uh, they win. They covered. Both you and I were right. No, didn't the cover. Most... Didn't Oh, co- really? Yeah, 37 points. 13 points. Yeah, it was 14 Those points, I think. was what bastards. That was at least the line. I don't know what it closed at, but that was the line that we had uh, when we recorded last week. So Those bastards. Well, Barely you know what? We can't even revel in being right. Not only did we lose, but they still made us wrong. I mean, really, it's a lose-lose at the end of the day on one of these Womp Womp Wednesdays. But let's talk about where we are winning. David, what are you drinking, buddy? Uh, actually, same as last week. So uh, it turns out, so in Pennsylvania, the alcohol laws are really strange. I think we talked about this like early on when I first moved up here, right? Um, right. So the only place that I can like go and buy beer somewhat conveniently basically only sells beer in large quantities. So I have to buy like, you know, massive like 24 pack of beer, essentially. You like, say that like that's a problem. I don't, uh, or I don't mean it as a problem. It just means that I'm still drinking the same thing as last week because I had so much of that beer. So I, I am having a, a celebration from Sierra Nevada. Also fair. Well, it is indeed the holiday spirit season. So I'm drinking uh, St. Arnold's Ye Old Christmas Ale. It's rich oh, nice. and cheerful. At least that's what the can says. <laughs> so uh, let's open up some cheerful fun uh, and, and open up this holiday, this Thanksgiving podcast. Those of you will probably yeah. who are driving to your family are probably going to be listening to this on your drive. Enjoy traffic. Uh, and uh, here's a frosty one to you. <laughs> that was not as spectacular as I thought it would that be. That weak. was more like a thud. Weak. It was more of a thud, but trust me, I'm, I'm drinking it. I'm drinking it. Hold on. All right, here we go. Let's have some fun, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get to the rundown. It is... Injury update. Unfortunately, Eric Reed lands on injured reserve with a torn biceps. Uh, and it really, this is one of those things where it's like when, when, when it rains, it pours because Jimmy Ward is now also going through the concussion protocol. You've got Torrey Smith still wearing that blue non-contact jersey. Um, more like that blue get traded jersey, if you ask me. <laughs> Aaron Lynch is still not moving well. He's done with a high ankle sprain. But really, of course, the big story here is Eric Reed landing on injured reserve with a torn biceps. David, what does the team do at this point with the secondary that has been playing not not poorly, which can't be said of other parts of the team, um, but is is definitely missing a piece with Eric Reed? Yeah, I think that's been, you know, probably the strongest point. And it's, of course, all relative, like they haven't been great necessarily but uh i i think probably the strongest aspect of this team so far has been the play that they've gotten in the secondary and um you know they're kind of slowly losing some pieces to that um i think so it sounds like you know chip uh, had some comments this week about it already um and, and it sounds like what they're going to be doing is what i think we probably would have expected and what i do think is the the right way to approach it which is that jimmy ward is going to stay presuming the, you know that he's able to um, come back and play whether that's this week I guess or, or the following week or whenever he gets back he's going to stay at cornerback which I, I do think is the right move and then that means uh, Jaquaski Tart's going to fill in for Eric Reed at safety and so you're going to have him and Bethea back there 
Uh, I, I think that makes the most sense given the construction of this team. Um, you know, if Ward's unable to go this week, of course, we'll see some Richard Robinson in there as a, a starter alongside Brock. Um, and I think that's probably the, again, their best route. Um, but it's unfortunate to see this group, you know, they were, again, playing about as well as anybody, any one group on this team and um, really was kind of somewhat exciting to see some of these young guys, you know, get some more time, get a get a chance to play together a little bit um, and, and gel a little bit there. So uh, it's it sucks. And especially with Eric Reed, you know, we don't have it with his contract situation. Um, you know, we don't know how much more of him we're going to get. What would make this a successful kind of mini audition for Jaquaski Tart? What what would get you to say, all right, at some point you're you're already, you know, you're you're talented enough to take over, you should take over, but Thay's getting old, Eric Reed, we don't even know if he's going to be here next year. Um is is this the it, this is his fifth year, correct? Or is it next year the fifth year? Next um, I think year, they right? yeah, they picked up his option, so next year is going to be his option okay. year. Yeah. So he's got he's got one more year at this point with Bethay. Do, what what would you need to see from Tart to say, yeah, it should be Tart and Reed in the backfield with maybe Jimmy Ward playing one more year at corner before he also then potentially moves to safety? I mean, I think at this point, as long as he doesn't completely bomb, I think you probably can make that argument, right? Just be because of the fact that Bethay is getting older and, you know, he hasn't been, I don't think he's been terrible. I mean, I think some people have really been kind of ripping on him this year and, and thinking that he's been a lot worse than he has been, but I think he's been fine. He wasn't as good, of course, as, you know, that first year that he he showed up here. But um, that's to be expected. And though I, I don't think you're going to, you know, reasonably expect him to get any better than this either. Right. So he's only going to be on the decline of his career. Uh, and, and I think when it comes to not only money, like, you know, Antoine Bethea is going to be more expensive to keep around than what you have with Tart on his rookie deal. Uh, and, and if you are going to decide to lock up Eric Reed. Uh, I, I think it makes sense to move that direction, you know, go with the younger group. You already have a younger uh, set of defenders anyway. I mean, this is one of the youngest groups in the league. So I think that as long as, as Tart doesn't come in there and completely bomb and, and just look really awful, uh, then I then I think that's still an argument that you're going to be able to make in this offseason. All right. Well, moving on then to the next story in the rundown is really going to be about it was an interesting Matt Miller article from from Bleacher Report. Now Matt Miller, if you're not familiar, he is a writer who generally covers the NFL draft, but he is a 49ers fan, and so he had an article, a really interesting, thought provoking article about what he would do if he were the general manager for like the bottom five or bottom ten teams, and of course the 49ers were chief among them, and the the too long didn't read version of his article was he would fire Chip Kelly and his entire staff. He would hire Josh McDaniels uh, and he would trade for a second round pick for Jimmy Garoppolo and draft Miles Garrett second overall. That That's the general gist being that coaching staff is awful and you need impact players at some key positions. You need a quarterback and this is going to be, you know, a three to five year rebuild at least while it's, it's probably a little too early to start talking about specific draft picks. I do think that the reconstruction of the 49ers is really going to come down, especially after this season, to a couple of key questions. And these are questions I want to loft at you, David. Number one, do we fire Chip Kelly? Number two, do you go after some kind of high-profile quarterback free agent somewhere in there to begin to spend some of this money and rebuild the roster? And three, what are some of the biggest positions of need? 
So you can tackle them in any order that you want. You get the magic GM wand. Uh, first order of business, do you keep the head coach and his staff? So this one's, I think, a tough question for a couple of reasons. One, because it's not, I, I don't think it's like as straightforward as do you think that he is, uh, that, that Chip is a good coach, right? Like, I, I don't think that's really the question that you have to answer. Like, the, the question that I think it ultimately comes down to is what happens with Balky. Um, and, you know, if if you fire Trent Balky. Well, if you're the GM, that means Trent Balky gone. He gone. Right. So, so I guess, are, are you wanting to, are you looking at this as more of a what should be done or what will happen sort of thing? Not a, not a what will happen. I'm more interested to hear what you would do if you were given the keys to the GM castle and you can't have co-GMs, right? Right. This isn't, this isn't Mormonism. There's no polygamy here. Uh, you can't have multiple GMs and just pretend it's going to be okay. This isn't big love. We're, we're talking about a regular old monogamous GM team relationship. There's one-to-one, man and a woman. Things are natural. Let's make it work. Uh, so, so what do you do? You're the GM. Trent Balky is fired. Jed York says, look, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm hiring you because you seem to talk pretty. Uh, let's make this, let's make this work. So in that case, I'm keeping chip. Um, I, I'm absolutely keeping chip. Um, I think where I, I look to, uh, find some new coaches is on the defensive side. I, I think you can pretty much, uh, argue for getting rid of that entire staff. I mean, I know that the one that's probably not going to go if chip were to stay is going to be the, the D line coach as, um, so I mean, as every time I hear, I see that name, I always want to call him Aziz Zari. <laughs> I mean, it's all the A's and Z's, you know, you can't help it. Or Aziz Line Zari. Huh? Uh-huh. 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 Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think he would probably stay just because him and Chip go way back and, and that's kind of, uh, been their thing. But yeah, I, I think you clearly need to go a different direction defensively and, and get a new defensive coordinator in there and, and probably just let him, you know, pick a brand new staff. So, uh, I think that's where I would focus my attention uh, from on the coaching staff. And then I don't agree. I mean, and it, we've talked about this in the past. Like, I, I don't think that the free agent market or trading for somebody else's backup is the way to go to get your quarterback, right? The way that you acquire a, a quarterback that's going to be a good player long term is through the draft. And is that a, a sure thing? No, there's no such thing as a sure thing in football. So I, I think you can't look at it from a sense that, yeah, you have all these first round picks that fail. It's the the likelihood that you're going to find, I guess it's regardless of the means that you acquire your quarterback, it's more likely that they're going to fail than they're going to succeed. Um, but I think your best probability of getting a good, a good quarterback that you can have for the long term is spending a high draft pick on them. Um, and, and so I think I, I haven't, you know, honestly paid too much attention to where the quarterback class is. I think it, it seems to be right now, the consensus is that it's fairly weak and that it's, Probably you're you're likely going to see Deshaun Watson go fairly high, and then after that, who knows? Um, but but I think that's where I'm looking. You know, I'm keeping Chip. He's never had an opportunity to get a quarterback, um, you know, that high in the draft. You're basically giving him his pick of the options in this draft, and I'm uh, letting him choose his guy essentially and see if he can build around him. I think that's the the starting point um, is to what I would do going forward. I think overall roster construction, there's there's not a position this team can't draft and need. Yeah. And even and and if you even look at the way the roster is constructed right now, you say who is the only blue chip player? Uh, and and Matt Miller mentions him in his article as well, but that's Joe Staley. He's the only player that you're like, yep, 
that's an NFL starter at his position and he and he kicks ass. But Joe Staley's getting up there in terms of offensive line years. I mean, unless you're talking about the Matthews brothers, you know, he's he's getting into his 30s. The the Matthews played into their late 30s and early 40s, and that is a rare, rare exception. So you're probably talking about another year or two of Joe Staley being the Joe Staley that we know today. And honestly, so, I don't think that Joe Staley is currently the Joe Staley that we've come to know. Yeah. Like he's already He could already be falling this off that cliff. year. I mean, it's it's hard to notice, you know, sometimes relative to how bad some of those other guys have been, so he just doesn't stick out that much, but uh I I don't think that he's playing as well um when it comes to either pass protection or run blocking than he's been in the past. I mean, he's still fine. Like he's still a, a quality starter, but I don't think we're any longer talking about him as like a top five player at his position. Yeah, agreed. So it's an interesting thought. I think it's probably a thought experiment we'll spend more time on in the offseason. And I think the way things are going, even the fact that we spent uh, five minutes on it in week 11, uh, week 12, indicates that we're already thinking towards the end of the year. So let's move on, as the Niners want to do this season, (laughs) on our next segment and talk about this Patriots recap because... It really was closer than expected. And let's talk about the biggest takeaways. First question I have for you, David, is how in the hell did we keep this so close? Because it was within shooting distance through three quarters. Through three quarters. Yeah. I mean, what, 13-10 at the end of the third? Um, Yeah. I mean, the only explanation can be, right, that, like, Belichick and Kelly had, like, uh, some sort of under-the-table agreement that was like, hey, man, like, let's... Let's let's keep this thing a little close for a bit. You know, I'm I'm really worried about my job here. You know, I kind of I got a good house in San Francisco. I really don't want to move again. Like, help a brother out here. Like, keep it close for three quarters, and then you know whatever, do your thing after that. I understand, but come on, help me out here. Like, that's all I got. Like, that's the only explanation for why. This so basically, was that close. we were Tom Brady's pity screw. Yeah, is what you're saying. Yeah. We, we, we're like, look, I'm like, it's, it's been like six or eight months since I've had any action. You're at least a nine. It's, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like that. Like, I'm functionally I'm, retarded. You, you know, know, how we're are, at this, how are we we're make this, this crappy house party? Like I'm drunk. You're drunk. There's not really anybody else here. <laughs> like, let's just go make a bad decision and then forget this ever happened. It's 2 a.m. And we're going to do it someplace very uncomfortable, like the back <laughs> of a Volkswagen. <laughs> I mean, that's all I've got. I, I don't know. I mean, was was there anything that stuck out to you? Like anything that you thought that was uh, really noticeably different from what we'd seen from this team over the you know first nine games of them being mostly terrible? So I would say that outside of one big run by LeGarrette Blunt in the first half, that the run defense kind of held up. I mean, by, by and large, and I know that the final numbers are, you know, they, they look much worse. And, and you look at his total yards and yards per carry, and they were all very, very high. But when you look overall, you know, if you remove that initial, that, that initial, I think it was like a 30 or 40 yard run. Yeah, like a 40 yarder. Yeah, the 49ers pretty much, you know, they, they, they had a 44 yard run on one play. Um, and then he rushed seven times for 57 yards after they took a lead. But in between there, he rushed 11 times for 23 yards. And you, you look at the, the game situation, right? Yes, the final, the, this game was not out of hand for a lot of the times when the Patriots were trying to run the ball. And yet, in the teeth of the game, in the second and third quarter, he rushed 11 times, like Eric Blunt, for 23 yards. And he, I mean, he was getting stuffed with, you know, eight and nine man fronts in rainy conditions. So 
overall, I think the run defense did fairly well. I also think the pass defense did well outside of Tom Brady being ridiculously Tom Brady. You look at Martellus Bennett. He was held to. Yeah, yeah, he he was on almost nothing. Um, And you've got Tom Brady's favorite receiver, uh, Amendola, who was held to very little. I think Amendola had some something ridiculous, like 17 targets. Like the, he was trying to get the ball to Amendola, and he couldn't. Edelman, you're, I, you're mixing it. Yeah, Edelman, oh, Edelman and Amendola. Right. Yeah, yeah. Correct. I'm. I sorry. White Shifty guys, man. little white guys. Not all those white guys look alike. Okay. Yeah, you know what? You do. <laughs> you do. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, it's yes, you can say that a lot of that was because of Rob Gronkowski and how he does not make the offense more dynamic. But this is still not a good defense. So I think those were probably the two things that stuck out to me to, to say, okay, this is the Tom Brady led offense. And yet we're able to hang with them for more than we're able to hang with most teams, especially on defense. And that to me was a little surprising. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think uh, right on with the, the run defense stuff. I mean, um, this to me seemed really more like a game from early in the season, you know, when, we talked about how generally it was on most run snaps. It was pretty good, right? Like things were fine, but there just seemed to be like two, three, four plays where things kind of broke down and they gave up big yardage. And and that matters, obviously, like those plays count. But when you're trying to evaluate them and how they're doing play to play, like when you're good 90% of the time, like that's, I think, a solid effort and, and still, um, you know, better than we've seen from this team, uh, the majority of these games. Uh, and yeah, I thought, you know, going into it, we, one of the things that we had to, to keep an eye on was Jimmy Ward and how he fared against, uh, you know, Edelman, Amendola in the slot, maybe even some of the, uh, the, the backs that they like to move out there. So I thought Jimmy Ward before he went out with the injury, um, you know, played pretty well in this. He really didn't give up, uh, you know, much in the way of big receptions to those guys, like really limited the damage. Um, I think he only gave up a couple of receptions to Edelman out of the, the eight that he ended up with. So uh, yeah, I thought that there were certainly some good things there. And and this was, I think, the team that we more expected to see at the beginning of the season, right? Like the, the, the entire preseason, everything that we were talking about was oh, this is still a bad team, right? The talent level still not there. This is still a team that's not going to win a lot of games, especially because they're going to play a very difficult schedule. But they should be at least more competitive than they were last year, right? They they should keep things a little bit closer and not, you know, have as many games like the the Steelers and the Cardinals games last year where it's over by the end of the first quarter, right? Like just completely out of hand and they just look completely unprepared from the moment that, that the game kicks off. And we're starting, you know, over the last few weeks to see more of that team that we expected. Again, not good. Um, certainly not trying to hide that or like sugarcoat that in any way. Like this is a bad football team. But it's not as bad as it was last year, and it's it's more competitive in a lot of ways. So if our first takeaway was that we were able to keep this relatively close and, and yet still lose by 13 points, you know, the and a lot of that is going to be on the strength if and I put that in severe air quotes of the run defense. <laughs> I, I do have one question on the run defense before we move on to the second biggest takeaway. We talked last week about Glenn Dorsey, and he was our spotlight player of the week. I do think that he makes this defensive line better. And this game he played you know, quite a bit as well. But I think I wonder if there's a bit of addition by subtraction with Eric Armstead not playing. How much of this success 
do you think is not just the delta of adding Glenn Dorsey, but also removing Eric Armstead, someone that we've noted on this podcast is a little inconsistent in his gap responsibilities and can sometimes cowboy and doesn't have the supporting cast to cover up his, his well mistakes. Yeah. And I I do think it's important to note that I, I not sure how much stock I want to put into Armstead's performance as a whole this year because of that shoulder injury. You know, it's, it's really something that I think was pretty clearly affecting him, but I, I think there's something to that, right? Like, he was out there, he was trying to tough through it, but he clearly wasn't the same guy. He wasn't able to hold up at the point of attack in the run game. Um, you know, he was still able to show enough, you know, to warrant being on the field because of the pass rush ability they had, even with that shoulder injury. But he he very clearly wasn't the same guy that we saw last year. So, um, yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think you get your, I mean, really what they're doing now is, one, you know, defensively, they're playing a lot more packages even when they go into to more sub packages where they're keeping three defensive linemen on the field. So they're keeping basically Buckner, Dorsey and dial that trio of guys on the field. Majority of time, like even when they go into some of their sub packages, they're removing, you know, a linebacker or something like that, as opposed to a defensive lineman, like you would typically see. So I think that part is partially going to help things out there. Yeah. Removing a guy that was very terrible um, this season against the run in Armstead, um, and then, you know, I, who knows? Like, I, I think a lot of it's probably just a little bit of a, you know, randomness too. like, they're going to eventually have some games. They're, they're not going to be historically bad every single week. Like that's just not a likely thing to, to happen. So you what were, you're telling me is that we can't even be bad. Well, <laughs> that's what I'm hearing right now. I'm hearing that we can't try and suck successfully. Enough, right? We cannot uh, suck successfully is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I mean, pretty pretty much. So, yeah, I, I think it's a few factors like that. But um, I, I certainly don't think, um, you know, I, I certainly think that there's some merit to the notion that having Armstead out of there is going to help things a little bit from a run defense standpoint. All right, so let's flip then to the second biggest takeaway and, and the other side of the ball. And this is really going to be evaluating Colin Kaepernick and his play in this game. This is a defense that we knew was soft over the middle coming into this game. And... We saw Kaepernick have some success there. But, David, help me contextualize that over now five games of of sample size because we've got five games of sample with Cap, five games of sample with Gabbert. And on the quarterback rating alone, you've got an 84.5 rating for Kaepernick and a 69.6 rating for Gabbert. So talk to me a little bit about what Kaepernick did in this game specifically and then if that's been something that's been consistent in the five games that Cap has played in or whether or not we see him getting better week after week. So I think in, in this game in particular, like we did see him have some success in the middle of the field. I mean, that was, it wasn't uh, necessarily a thing where he was clearly like able to take advantage and get a lot of big plays there and, and really, you know, move the 49ers offense effectively by throwing, throwing the ball there. But I mean, he ended up nine of 12 for 121 yards on throws between the numbers compare that to seven of 15 for 85 yards outside the numbers. So he was clearly more effective in that area, but it just wasn't quite enough, right? He really couldn't take advantage. One of the things that we talked about going into the week um, was how the, the Patriots slot cornerbacks, right. had been kind of struggling guys like Logan Ryan, guys like Patrick Chung, who had really spent the majority of their time, um, you know, in that slot cornerback role. We, we couldn't take advantage of those guys. I mean, Logan Ryan might've been one of the best players on the field for this week. Like, uh, he, he only gave up two receptions for seven yards on five targets um, and was generally 
just kind of very good and didn't wasn't allowing his guy to get open. Um, we didn't see he was really the the primary guy in this game. We didn't see um, too much from Patrick Chung. Uh, only six snaps, zero targets when he was in the slot this week. So, yeah, it was a it was a case where, yes, this was a weakness for the Patriots relatively, and and this was an area that we thought the 49ers might be able to have some success in. And while that was kind of true, it, it wasn't enough. They weren't able to exploit it to the degree that they needed to to, to be able to really have a chance to win this game. So, uh, and I, which I suppose isn't all that surprising again, considering um, the the offense that we're talking about here and the the skill position. Uh, talent that they have and, and the problems they've had all year but moving to the bigger picture question there and, and kind of how Kaepernick's looked uh, over his five starts relative to what we saw from Gabbard I think the numbers kind of reflect mostly what I would have expected going into it right it's one Kaepernick is uh, a little bit less efficient right completion percentage is down compared to what we saw from Gabbard um, but he's able to connect on more bigger throws so his his yards per attempt is up um, even when you adjust for things uh, like sacks and you look at some of the like adjusted yards per attempt, adjusted net yards per attempt that pro football reference measures like he's up pretty much across the board over Gabbert there. And that's because he is able to generate some more big throws. So he's been a bit more accurate on those downfield passes. Um, he's taking care of the ball more, which I know seems a little weird for somebody like Kaepernick that that isn't very accurate. But that's something that he's been. Um, really consistently very good at through his entire career has a very low career picks two INTs. Yeah. I mean, his career interception rate, I, I think is either um, still just below 2% or like hovering right around 2%, which is, is very, very good. So uh, he's that not Arizona game has got to be at least like a half percent swing. Yeah. I mean, uh, that there there's as much as that game will kind of stick in your mind, especially since that was the last one that we saw from him last year. Right. Well, that was at the final. Yeah. Yeah. It was close to, he may have, ha- he may have played like half of one game after that yeah so i mean that one kind of sticks with you but that hasn't been the the norm for him throughout his career he's been somebody that uh generally takes care of the ball and if he misses he, he's missing to areas where it's not going to necessarily um hurt his team or turn the ball over so interception rate has gone down from what we saw from gabbert and the sack rate's gone up right gabbert for for all of his faults like the one thing that he did was get rid of the ball very quickly kaepernick's a little bit more willing to hang on to the ball like try to extend plays um, you know, try to make something happen with his feet a little bit more. So, uh, you know, he's taken a few more sacks as a result of that, even though I think the, the pass protection has generally been about the same, um, for, for both guys. So yeah, I, I think the, the numbers bear out what we would have expected. Kaepernick's still not good, but he's, uh, certainly an improvement over what we were getting from, from Gavard through the first five games. Well, I think a couple of quarterback rating numbers will help put a fine point on on what you talked about so far. And it's really going to be the overall quarterback rating, which for cap has been is now at 84 Gabbert 69 quarterback rating with a clean pocket for Kaepernick is 89.2 for Gabbert. It's 83 for quarterback rating under pressure for cap. It's 74 for Gabbert. It's 30. And quarterback rating on yards, uh, on throws, 20 or more yards down the field. Colin Kaepernick, 113.4, and Blaine Gabbert, 37. So, I mean, really, when it comes down to it, yeah, that's that's a bit of a delta, a bit of a difference. Yards per attempt, of course, for Kaepernick, 7. For Gabbert, just shy of 6. So, really, I mean, the numbers bear out exactly what you said, David. Colin Kaepernick is, is better than Gabbert. Uh, even if you think so marginally, really on the strength of him being better under pressure and better on yards, uh, on on bigger throws down the field. 
So let's talk then about the the kind of the run game for the 49ers. And this will be our third and final takeaway in this Patriots game. But this was a Patriots defense that we thought was susceptible to the pass, but not so much the run. This is a run defense that was ranked fairly highly coming into this game against the 49ers. And it was a game where the 49ers did indeed struggle to run the ball. They had a couple of good positive runs early on, especially in the game that were able to sustain some drives. But especially when when you got into that third quarter, the team simply did not have the ability to continue to run the ball and relieve some pressure off of Colin Kaepernick. So, David, what the hell happened to the 49ers run offense? And is this a systemic problem or is this just the Patriots coming out in the second half and saying, nah, 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 we know what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, ha- facing a, a top five, you know, run defense like the Patriots have been this year certainly isn't going to to help matters. But I think this is really more of a problem, um, you know, that's plagued the Fortnite's all year, regardless of of opponent. Um, most of their run game success has really fallen on what they've been able to get out of the quarterbacks. And that's both, uh, you know, scrambling, which I don't consider as a part of the run game, right? Like it's a pass play. You're just tapping. You're able to make something you know, out of a otherwise negative situation in some cases by by being able to have your quarterback take off there. But that's not, you know, that's not the intention of the play. So I, I don't include those kind of numbers when I'm considering like in evaluating the run game. Um, it's a little bit like when you're playing pool and you try and hit the nine ball into the corner pocket and you end up hitting the two ball into the side pocket. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it wasn't your intention, but OK, this like works out OK, too. Like I, I can live with this. Um, and so I think the, the problems really start with the 49ers run game, you know, up front that this is an offensive line that has been really pretty terrible all year when it comes to, to blocking the run game. And we saw in this game, like the interior defensive line for, for new England would just really kind of dominated up front. I mean, guys like Alan branch, Malcolm Brown, Trey flowers, um, kind of just had their way with the 49ers offensive linemen, um, especially the interior guys, um, but even guys like, you know, Joe Staley uh, had some moments where like there was a play early on where Malcolm Brown um, was going up against a double team from Staley and uh, Zane Beatles there on the left hand side. And he just tossed Staley aside and, and went in the backfield and made the play. Um, and, and so you had things like that happening. Um, you end up with a lot of runs that are getting stuffed, you know, either short of the line of scrimmage or just barely beyond. I mean, uh, nearly or just a little bit over half of the 49ers carries by their running backs. So they had 23 total carries from backs. 12 of those went for two yards or less. And that's really, to me, more of a problem with the offensive line. You know, it's it's not too often that you're going to see mistakes from your running backs lead to negative plays like that. Yeah, it'll happen every once in a while. But generally, if you're getting your running backs hit at the line of scrimmage or behind it, like that's a problem with the offensive line. Something up front is is breaking down to where defenders are able to get into the backfield and make things happen. And, you know, that's what we've seen from this team all season. We've talked about Hyde and how well he's been able to to do after contact. And that was the same thing here. So he had, yeah, I think he averaged four and a half yards per carry total in this game. Three and a half yards of those came after contact. So he forced five missed tackles on just his 19 carries, uh, 3.5 yards per carry after contact. So most of what was happening there was either a, a result of Hyde doing, you know, just kind of, uh, hide things at this point, breaking tackles, being able to get yardage and two from, from the quarterbacks, right? Like from Colin Kaepernick, not as much on designed runs, but being able to get some yardage 
uh, there. And that's how you end up with kind of the overall rushing totals that that look decent in this game. But I don't think we're nearly as good uh, as they might lead you to believe. One of the things that or one of the contributing factors towards being terrible in the run game is going to be the tight ends. There were a couple weeks and I remember specifically in the Carolina game. Uh, I think it was where, where you said, hey, look at Garrett Zellick run blocking. And I was like, OK, let me go ahead and take a look. And I was like, oh, I don't see Garrett Zellick run blocking because this is not run blocking. This is just <laughs> standing and sticking a hand out and maybe trying to get in someone's way, not doing a very good job. But Garrett Zellick generally is not very good at run blocking and currently ranks 60 out of 63 in terms of qualifying tight ends in terms of a run block grade. And when you look at the offensive formations that Chip Kelly is trying to deploy, he's trying to leverage the tight ends. He's trying to leverage Selleck and Vance McDonald. And he's doing a fairly decent job, at least. Vance McDonald, of course, caught the touchdown this week. But you just don't have the horses up front to run consistently well. And Chip Kelly admitted as much this week when he said this team is not built to run. But this team isn't really built to pass either. No, so no, no. He, he said te- that they're not. Yeah, he said that they're not built to throw the ball 60 times was was kind of his uh, his quote there. And and that's, I think, the problem, right, is that this is very clearly like a team that is, quote unquote, built to run the ball. That's what they want to do. That's what Trent Baalke has said that they've wanted to do for a while now. You know, that's been Chip's M.O. for for basically his entire uh, coaching career is that they're going to run the ball first and that's going to set up everything that they do in the passing game. And so that's really a problem for this offense generally. I mean, you're already dealing with a, a pretty big talent deficiency compared to most of the teams that you're playing. Um, so you have a lot that you're already trying to overcome there. And then when you look at kind of the philosophy of your offense and it's we want to be able to run the ball, um, we're going to you know leverage our quarterback's athleticism and be able to, to implement that into our run game. And then we're going to do some things off of that and play action and passing game. I mean, mean, chips use play action uh, as much or more than, you know, anybody in the NFL over his time there. So that's kind of the approach that they want to take. And when you can't run the ball, they just kind of kill. And and, and all of a sudden you get behind, right? Because you're, again, your team's not very good. So you're playing most of the game down and you're having to throw the ball more. It just really goes against everything that they want to do and uh, makes them even less effective because when you see them be good in stretches it's typically because they got something on the ground right that Hyde was able to get off a couple of runs keep the the down and distance reasonable and then Kaepernick's able to get some easy throws off play action and um, you know move the ball that way and that's when things are going and they put together those good drives here and there that's usually been the formula and it's just not something that they can sustain drive after drive or game after game even. All right, so give me your spotlight play of the week then. If, if we've talked about the three biggest takeaways so far, and it's really been how we were able to keep this so close on, on the heels of a resurgent, again with the air quotes, run defense, and, and a secondary that performed well. We talked about how th- this is really a team that cannot run the ball well, and, and yet and Colin Kaepernick, who seems to be performing better than, than Blaine Gabbert, all that considered, who's the player that in this game jumped out at you and were like, okay, all right, I see what you're doing. So I'm actually going to go away from basically all of those things. Everything that we for, talked for about? For the most part, yeah. And it's for a couple of reasons. One, I think we, um, you know, have focused on a few of the same players, you know, kind of throughout the year. And of course, like as expected, it's a lot of the the kind of highly touted young guys that we've been expecting to develop and that are likely regardless of what happens with the front office or coaching staff, like 
pretty likely to be a part of this team, you know, at least their long-term plans here. So it's guys like DeForest Buckner, Josh Garnett, you know, Armstead before he was hurt, Jimmy Ward, like all of those type of guys that have been high draft picks in recent years have been kind of the guys that we focused on. But um, somebody that's kind of stood out to me a little bit the last couple of weeks is somebody that I've actually generally been very down on for the last couple of years, actually, uh, was Ahmad Brooks. And I think that he is on a defense again, especially a run defense that is generally playing very, very bad. Um, he has stood out the last couple of weeks as somebody that's been playing a lot better. And I think he's you could argue that he's probably been their best front seven player the last couple of weeks here since the bye. Um, and, and I thought this was a pretty good game for him. I, I thought he did very well on the edge against the run. Um, you know, he, he's not doing a ton from uh, a pressure standpoint, but, you know, he's getting in there every once in a while. I think he had three pressures total in this game, uh, including the sack. So I, I think that he is just a guy that, you know, we don't think about too much because he's an older guy. He's been around for a long time. We don't see him as part of uh, any sort of long-term plans with this team. Like he, the next time that the 49ers are good, Ahmad Brooks is almost certainly not going to be on that team. So it, it's easy to kind of forget about those guys, but um, he was somebody that again, has stood out to me these last couple of weeks. All right. You know what that means though, right? Ahmad Brooks, two offsides penalties this week. Yeah. Two drinks. Them's the rules. I mean, hashtag better rivals drinking game. Yeah, so it's just expected it. at this point. Like, let's pour, let's pour some out for the homies straight uh, into our gullets. Here it goes. All right. And on that and note, that I end. need to get another beer. So uh, I think you can get us into the stat of the week here while I do that. That's absolutely correct. So we've actually got two stats of the week while David goes to get one other beer. Notice how I speak slower so that I give him time. Uh, but first up is actually a stat from Chase Stewart. So Chase Stewart has these game scripts where he talks about the average point differential over the course of a game. And this is usually a better indication of how competitive games are, because obviously if there's a big point differential for every minute in the game, then you know that the game was a blowout pretty early on. In 2015, the 49ers trailed by an average of 5.95 points over every second of play. That's not very good. But remember how this year we were talking about how the 49ers were still probably going to lose a lot of games and maybe not even surpass five wins, but they were going to be a better team. And that's exactly what we're seeing so far through week 10. So far, they've trailed by an average of 4.04 points over every second of play. That's nearly two full points over every second. That's a lot. That's a lot, a lot. So the even though we're losing... We're not losing by a lot. This is and, and again, this is a game where we were able to keep it close through three quarters with the best or if you're in California, the second best team in the AFC. So this is not nothing. I think you're still going to lose a lot, but you're not going to lose by as much. And this is the stat that proves such uh, second stat of the week is that now for those of you on draft watch we have an 84% chance of ending up with a top three pick in the 2017 NFL draft. And that trails only the Cleveland poops, according to football outsiders. So let's I, do I'm it. Start. Top three. Let's I'm do a, it. I don't want top three. I want Bullshit, top you don't one want or top two. Three. No, I no, I want top one or two. Oh, like, okay. I, I, I don't even think so. I saw Matt Miller talking about how we should draft miles Garrett second overall. I don't know that Miles Garrett's going to be there second overall. Yeah, I want I mean, Miles Garrett. That's that's fair. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, right now, again, and we'll get, obviously, in it. so Miles Garrett, is, is he kind of your early draft crush here? Like, that's the guy that you're you're. That's kind my of early for? draft crush, dude. Look, I'm actually, so I will be in College Station on Thursday at this stupid game against LSU, and, and I go because I married into a cult. I married an Aggie, and her she comes from a family of Aggies. Her parents live in College Station, and we're going to go to her family's house for Thanksgiving, and we're going to go watch the LSU A&M game at Kyle Field, and I am telling myself that other than being a cultural player and it being kind of cool because it's Kyle Field, I get to go watch Miles Garrett live. Yeah. This is going to be fun against LSU. Like, it's going to be a fun game. Yeah, I was working on the the A&M game last week um, for, for PFF, and, you know, look, it was UT San Antonio, like, he done, he did exactly what he should have done in that game. But up two players. But I remember you, you texted me to play. If it wasn't fun to watch, still <laughs> like you know again, and, and it was one clip. It was so funny. Like I, I tweeted out this clip, uh, and, and basically it was Miles Garrett uh, coming off the right hand side and just barreling the left tackle back and throwing him into a receiver that was motioning across the formation at the time. And so it it just it's hilarious to watch to me. Um, and it was so funny, like how serious some of the responses that I got back were like, oh, if you were really dominant, you should have got around the edge on that tackle or, uh, you know, come on. It's like, look, I know it's UT San Antonio. Like, I'm not oblivious to this fact. I'm not saying that the dude's the next Lawrence Taylor, but that shit was funny. Um, and it was, man, I think he had like five sacks in that game. And he did. Uh, he had five. And look, it's not like he's playing a cupcake schedule every week. Dudes in the SEC, like playing as tough of a schedule as you're going to find in college football. So uh, he's been pretty phenomenal. Like I know he's graded very well for us in both the, the pass rush and run game department uh, at PFF. So yeah, it's going to be fun watching him play, dude. Uh, I'm, he's a fun I'm guy. excited. Yep. I am excited. Although I have contemplated taking an LSU koozie just to piss people off. Uh, although I don't know that my wife would appreciate that very much. And I like being married more than I like being a sports fan. <laughs> so let's <laughs> so let's get to our next segment then. And that's going to be NFL quick hits. Uh, this is where we unload a barrage of questions and we answer them as quickly as we possibly can. Sometimes that is as quick as we intend. Other times it is not. So <laughs> let's get right into it, David. Question number one. Oakland finally gets to avenge. The tuck rule game this year against New England. No, they're never going to avenge that. That was a, that basically cost them a Super Bowl. No, never. It's not possible. So Oakland's not going to beat the Patriots in the playoffs and make it to the Super Bowl and potentially win this year. No, no, absolutely not. All right, on record, all you folks in the uh, in in Oakland, you can go ahead and send your hate mail at David Newman. <laughs> If you nobody, can figure out the nobody, under- nobody that likes the Raiders is listening to this, so I'm not worried. If you can, if you can, if you hate the Raiders, or no, I'm sorry, I'm already in my hate. If you like the Raiders and you're listening to this podcast, and you can get a tweet to David Newman, which would require both spelling his last name right and getting the underscore, I'm giving you a hint. You get a prize. That prize is my adoration. Number two, uh, the twelve missed point after tries PATs last week, are actually good for football. No. How is... 
Uh, no. I mean, I guess maybe if you want to swing it in terms of a it's good because maybe they'll just get rid of the PAT completely anyway, like, then okay. But here's here's the counter argument. The counter argument is that they moved the PAT back because they were tired of point after tries being automatic. They wanted to introduce some level of variability into the game and also maybe introduce more two point after tries. So at the point at which you see all of these missed PATs, then you might actually be incentivizing teams uh, like Pittsburgh to go after more two-point conversions. Or you might be saying, oh, now there is no longer a meaningless play in football. Now I actually do have to watch these stupid point-after tries because someone could miss it. Or you could have someone jump over the line and block it and return it and win the game. Uh, no, so I mean, it's it's a the PAT is still a play that like nobody is is getting unless it's at the end of the game, right? Unless it's like in a situation where this PAT is going to tie the game and send it to overtime or potentially win the game, then it it just still like it it's not having the intended effect. And coaches are still not going to I, like guys like Tomlin, right? We're going to make aggressive calls and and go for two a little bit more often than norm anyway like even without that rule that was something you know that the guys like him were going to do so i think collectively nfl head coaches are still a very overly conservative cautious we're going to do things the way that we've always done them bunch and like this isn't going to change that like the only thing that it's going to change is maybe they fire kickers more often um but but i don't think you're going to see many of those head coaches going for two, which, I mean, if that was the result, that would be great. To me, get rid of the PAT, make them go for two every time. Let's do that. That would be fun. Yeah, you know what? I would not I would be okay with that. Uh, all right, number three. Marvin Lewis should be unemployed in 2017. Probably, I guess. See, I feel like this question's a two-parter, right? Because, one, should he be coaching the Bengals I think we all agree, probably not. I think he's he's reached the end of his rope. But should he be unemployed in 2017, meaning should he then not go? Like, I feel like the the, the in my perfect universe, here's what happens. The Rams fire Jeff Fisher. The Bengals fire Marvin Lewis. And, and they then they swap. just swap coaches. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's fucked up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that... Uh, so I think that Marvin Lewis is pretty clearly one of like the 32 best head coaches. So, so yeah, I guess fully unemployed. No, he shouldn't be some like he'll get hired somewhere, even if he were to get fired in Cincinnati. But yeah, I mean, I think there, there, there's an argument to be made there that, you know, you've been around long enough, you know, obviously he's turned the Bengals from, from a, a, a team that was a laughing stock year in year out. Uh, to team that now expects to make the playoffs every year, right? And be competitive. And obviously they haven't been that this year. Uh, and, and that's been a pretty big disappointment for them. So yeah, I think you can make that, that argument that, you know, he's been there long enough. It's probably time to get some new blood in there and, and go a little bit of a different direction. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I can see also being a little over attached to the guy that made your football team relevant, you know, for the, you know, first time in a long time. All right. Question number four, the giants will beat the Patriots in the playoffs again. No giants ain't going to the super bowl. I mean, they're going to collapse over the second half of the year. Like they, you know, like as a normal giant season and they'll sneak into the playoffs maybe. 
and yeah. So to the the argument that or the the stat that helps bolster your Giants collapse is that according to uh, NFL research, the team's margin of victory over their seven wins is just twenty seven points. Yikes! Which is the lowest margin of victory over that time span in NFL history. And we all know if you've been listening to this podcast for a bit. You know that winning in close games is not sustainable because it has too much randomness to sustain over time. Uh, and yet, here are the Giants. So more than likely, they will regress to the mean, uh, which means they will begin to lose some of these close games because they're not very good. So number five, uh, one that comes close to home, Texas made or is making, question mark, the right call by firing Charlie Strong. True or false? True. Yeah, I mean, dude... There's there's a lot of arguments, but dude lost at Kansas. First time, I love the stat. I don't care how many qualifiers that you have to throw in there for it. First time that Texas has lost to Kansas since 1938. 1938. Um, yeah. yeah, there were 25 years in there. Look, I, I, I'm one of the people, one of the few people I believe that thinks that Charlie should get another year. And there were like 40 years between 1930 and 1990, where I think that's how math works, something in there, where those teams actually did not play. So Minor details really, here. Um, right. 1938 <laughs> is really the number that you need to focus on there. The other stuff doesn't matter. Um, yeah. Look, here's the, here's the thing uh, with, with Charlie Strong. One, what the most that they have, they haven't won more than six games. Is that true? Six or seven? Uh, I believe there. they won seven games Charlie's first year. I know they went to a bowl Charlie's first year, and I'm pretty sure they did it with seven games. So seven games. We'll go with that. Um, and I believe the low at the end of the Mac Brown era there when things were like everybody in Texas was like, oh, my God, this is the absolute worst was like eight wins. Right. Pretty sure that's true. I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere this week. Um, yeah, that's Mac. Mac hit when he got fired. He won eight games. So he has failed at his peak to reach even the depths of the previous tenure um in oh no it was uh, situ- charlie strong went six and seven his first year five and seven last year uh so yeah and this year he is staring down the barrel of a six win season yeah so things haven't been great um he has been he's taken a team that you know was uh, went from being national title content contenders every year to uh, a team that you know wasn't that and therefore was upset and uh has made them worse and it's really i mean i think the arguments about everything that comes with texas right like you have the some major major recruiting advantages being in texas um, you know, there, there are kids that just, that are great that just want to play for tech. Like you don't even have to try. They just want to go play in Austin for Texas. Um, and, and so the fact that you weren't able to get, um, you know, some of the players that you needed from Texas to come to your program, I think is a, is a, is a big problem. And also, again, I think when you hire a guy like that, right, like you, you hire a defensive minded guy to come into the big 12 where defense isn't really a thing. And uh, he's been completely miserable. The defense has gotten worse every year that he's been there. Uh, I, I don't know how you if this is the one thing that you're supposed to be able to do and you've gotten worse every year that you've been there. I don't know how you can like, what are you good for at that point? Like if you're not going to come in here and be able to defend all of these good offenses in the Big 12, then what's the point of having you around? All right, we've got to move on here. But final question, just give me one name 
odds-on favorite to win the MVP, Brady, Dak, Carr, or Zeke. Out of those four, who's your odds-on favorite to win the MVP? Brady. Yeah, it's probably Brady. Although yeah. I kind of want it to be Dak. Cow- he, the Cowboys guys are going to split votes. So like, if you think a Cowboy should win the MVP, you're almost certainly going to be split on which one, and they're going to take votes away from each other. Neither Fair of point. them will win it. Fair point. All right, let's go to our next segment then, and that's going to be a preview of the upcoming game against the, well, what could have been, quite frankly. Uh, This is going to be the San Francisco 49ers versus the alternate universe 2016 San Francisco 49ers with Adam Gase, a coach that the 49ers were in talks with to hire as their head coach, but instead let slip away. Uh, And because of supposedly uh, a desire to keep Tom Sula as the defensive coordinator, Force the 49ers to end going instead with that Mr. Jim Tom Sula. And, well, here we are, one fart conference later, uh, facing Adam Gase in Miami. And <laughs> I love that this is the note. This is the note that David left in the agenda because this, I think this just, you know, it bears repeating line by line. <laughs> uh, David, and I quote, we're literally worse than the team who plays in Hard Rock Stadium and has a CEO named Garfinkel. I mean, so talk talk to yep. me about what your Preview three things over. done. The, what are your three things to watch against the, the Miami <laughs> Dolphins? So, so I think the first one um, is will the the Fortnite's defense be able to tackle. Jay and I'm going to like uh, as expected I think at this point going to I I still don't think I'm entirely sure how to say his last name is it Ajayi Ajayi I feel like I've heard it a million different ways and I don't no, know which don't, one's correct don't do Asai it's not it's not a berry you put in your smoothie fair uh Jay Asai although that'd be kind of funny uh I, I'm pretty sure it's Ajahi. Ajahi. all right We'll go with that. Yeah, um, we'll go with that. Can they tackle homeboy even a single time uh, in, in, in <laughs> this boy. game? Just abandon all <laughs> yeah, last names. We won't even go. <laughs> Jay homeboy. Uh, yeah, so I mean, he's been, you know, obviously he had a few big weeks there. Uh, and I think I made a snarky comment a few weeks ago that, like, of course, they weren't going to be able to sustain that. And, you know, go figure. That's, uh, that's the NFL for you. So, I mean, he's been, uh, you know, one of the hardest to tackle backs in the season or uh, in the league this year. Um, according to PFF, has the second highest elusive rating. So that's going to measure um, basically how many missed tackles are they forcing um, every time they touch the ball. So, so far on 159 touches this year, he's forced 34 missed tackles, which is insane. Um, and he's averaging a league high 3.58 yards after contact per attempt. So, um, and as we're going to get to in a minute, the the Dolphins offensive line hasn't been great and is pretty banged up right now. And so basically everything that they're doing on the ground um, has a lot to do with this guy and and his ability uh, to make guys miss. And this has been a major problem for the 49ers defense this year. I mean, there have been many of them, but uh, this one is kind of stuck out more than a lot. They had 11 missed tackles last week against the Patriots, um, which is not the first time this year that they've had double digit missed tackles. They're averaging eight per game uh, over the, the the first 10 weeks uh, this year. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a rough go. They haven't been able to to get ball carriers to the ground, obviously. And this has some, been somebody that's been uh, harder to tackle than most. And, and, and again, that three point five eight yards per contact uh, per or after contact per attempt uh, is the highest in the league. So more than Zeke, more than a lot of the other good backs that we've seen uh, on this schedule. 
Um, so yeah, I want to see them get like, will he even go to the ground? I guess is my question. Well, you know, you watch a Jahi run and he runs with urgent violence. Like he needs to get to contact really quickly and then make as much contact as possible. Like he just, it, it's, it's really fun watching him run. I mean, it's going to suck, I guess now being on the other end of, <laughs> of his punishing runs, but you see him run and you're like, this is what I guess a fully evolved Carlos Hyde could look like if Carlos Hyde were, were healthy all the time. This is the kind of running he runs with a very similar style, I feel like, as Carlos Hyde, except that he's running on a team with at least an, an above, a marginally above average quarterback uh, and a competent uh, or, or a competent roster. So here you are with a team that may not get tackled with a defense that can't seem to make tackles. And so this then is going to be the, the other question is whether or not the 49ers are, are going to be able to, to do much of anything against the run game. But then the other question I have for you is, is this Tannehill thing a mirage? Or is Ryan Tannehill going to help the Dolphins win? Because Tannehill's been, he's like the new Joe Flacco, right? You, you've got people who fall on either side of this Tannehill debate where they say, no, he is a good quarterback who's just had really shitty coaching. And now that he's getting good coaching, he's seeming to be successful so are are we going to see a team where we have to struggle with both Jay Ajayi, but then also a Ryan Tannehill, or do we not have to worry so much about the quarterback and just focus on the running back? I mean, I think you you know when you're when you're a, a team that is uh, talent deficient as the 49ers are right now, you probably have to be worried about just about everybody. Um, but relatively, I think Ryan Tannehill is somebody who's ultimately going to end up. And that sort of, uh, I, I guess, like Jay Cutler, uh, Matthew Stafford, like type of guy where where there's clearly like a lot of physical tools there. Right. Like he he does a lot of things well um, and everybody's always kind of waiting for him to take the next step. Right. Like ready for him to become like a top tier quarterback in this league. And it just never happens. And like nobody is ever really willing to accept that. You know, again, with Stafford and Cutler, I feel like it was like this for for the longest time It's like nobody wants to accept that they just are what they are. Right. They're they're these guys that are capable of some brilliant moments and can look really good in stretches and that are also capable of some really, really horrible play and some really terrible mistakes, um, you know, that are kind of randomly mixed in there. And that's just what they are. And they're never going to be necessarily that top five quarterback but they're also better than probably 75% of the league, right? Like you're going to kind of fit in that second or third tier somewhere. Um, and I think that's what T Tannehill's kind of become is, yeah, he's been a little bit more consistent, I think, uh, you know, under Adam Gase and compared to the coaching staffs that he's had uh, before then. But um, in, in terms of this game specifically, like, yeah, I, I expect him to probably come in and play well because you have a 49ers defense that's been pretty bad and a secondary that, uh, again, while we mentioned has been the relative strength is probably going to be uh, banged up and possibly without two of their better players. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that they're probably going to come in and be able to do a little bit of whatever they want to. But considering that, you know, uh, the, the run game has really been kind of, I think, probably a stronger point for them so far. Uh, and the 49ers have been so, so bad in that area. Uh, I think they'll probably lean a little heavier that direction. But uh, yeah, Tannehill is going to find some success for sure. 
Well, let, we'll get to the the offensive line versus the defensive line here in a second. But first of all, you said that Tannehill's probably going to end up being better than 75% of the quarterbacks. I presume you to mean the starting quarterbacks, and that means that that's top eight. So the, the, that tw- top 25% is top eight. So are you saying that Tannehill's a top eight quarterback? I think he's like flirting. I think he's going to settle in that range, right? Like the eight to 10 ish. Like that seems where he, so I he's think a top, put, he's a top 10 in the NFL quarterback, you know, given that there are 32 teams, right? Like that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty, I'm not saying that you're too far off. Cause I think he's probably the new Alex Smith, but I, that that's top 10. I mean, I think there are a lot of teams, the 49ers included who would take a top 10 quarterback right now. Sure, but I I think there's not a ton of separation, I guess, between what like once you get, I think probably in that eight range, right? Like, uh, the the guys that are between eight and fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. I don't think there's a ton of difference between those guys. I think what you see difference in in performance uh, between that group is going to be mostly a result of things around like external factors, right? Like what's the the surrounding talent like what sort of offensive coaching staff do they have like how well do they fit within all of that um i think that's going to be kind of you know if anything separates them but i think from a a talent standpoint what you can expect game to game like i i don't think like you could probably throw those guys in just about any order and i'd be like yeah okay that's fine like whatever so let's talk then about the interior of the Dolphins offensive line, because if we're going to get to Ryan Tannehill and we're going to force him into making some mistakes, we're going to do it up the middle. So this is an offensive line that's a little banged up. You've got people coming into this offensive line like Mike Pouncey, Brandon Albert, Laramie Tunsil, uh, who are all starters who could all be out for this game. And you've already got a quarterback in Ryan Tannehill that's being pressured on close to 40% of his dropbacks. He's getting pressured uh, really less than only Andrew Luck and Tyrod Taylor. Uh, and how many sacks did we end up getting against Tyrod? Because I feel like that was a game where, even though they ended up carving us up near the end, I feel like we got at least three or four sacks in that game. I could be wrong because Tyrod's freaking Houdini. Um, he's <laughs> like, uh, well, he's like uh, oh, Nano Bubbles without Russell the, Wilson. I don't know, there you go, uh, without the the actual arm <laughs> and decision-making. Yeah, he's like, but, I mean, I guess if you want to give him like a Russell Wilson light, you know, he's not near that level of talent, but he's Tyler yeah. Taylor is a good player. You know, he's been uh, he's been solid these last couple. Would years. you say he's top eight? Uh, no, I, I would throw him in that. I would throw him in that like eight to 16 mix where you the know, middle mix. Yeah, absolutely. The middle mix. Uh, but so you talk about an offensive line that is really uh, struggling, coming and hobbled. And you also are seeing a 49ers defensive player that is starting to generate a bit more pressure. And that is one Mr. DeForest. Don't call me Brenston Buckner. Uh, He is starting to generate a bit more pressure and really coming into his own, uh, especially after the bye week. Yeah, I mean, we've been waiting for like one of the things that we were so excited about, or at least I know I was um, about Buckner, like when we drafted him, when we were talking about him, even leading up to the draft, right? When we did the, the stuff on kind of some of those top defenders was what an impact that he made at the college level, right? It wasn't he he wasn't necessarily your typical three, four D end and that I'm going to be in a scheme where I just kind of occupy blockers and I don't really do a lot um, when it comes to, you know, producing things that show up on the stats, the stat sheet, right? Like I'm not making a lot of tackles, not generating a lot of negative plays, all of that stuff. Like 
that simply wasn't the case. Like he was one of the most productive college football players that we've seen in the last few years. And he was making plays all over the place, whether that was uh, rushing the passer and, you know, getting, I think he had double digit sacks his final year at Oregon. Um, And also like making plays in the run game, right? He was consistently able to get into the backfield, make tackles for loss. Um, You know, I think I, I went back and looked earlier this week and his run stop percentage last year at Oregon was 9.8%. So just shy of 10%. One out of every 10 run snaps that he had was ending in a stop. And that was good for like the fifth highest mark in college football last year. Um, This year so far, he's at 4.4% in the run game. So he hasn't been making those same sort of plays. And that's been, I think, the most disappointing thing with him is, you know, I don't think he's been terrible. He's been a, a solid player so far, especially considering the talent that's been around him. Um, but he's not he's not really having a, a big impact, especially in the run game. And I think this is a game where the, the opportunity is there for him to kind of have somewhat of a breakout game, right? Like the the guys that you mentioned there in Pouncey, Albert and Tunsil are all along the left side. So that's their their left tackle guard and center um, all could potentially be out. So you could be looking at three backups there. Then you combine that their right guard, Jermon Bushrod, has been absolutely awful this year has been one of the worst guards in football um like the guys that he's going to be going up against uh should not be very good like it's it's going to be a situation where he should clearly be the better player and uh you know i want to see what he does like i want to see him have that sort of breakout performance where he makes a big impact uh is able to come up with some negative plays get a sack or two like make a difference like go out there and be the guy that we thought you could be um, when you're t- talking about a you know a top seven pick here, well, he did have seven hurries against the Patriots, and the, the game that you're talking about is a game that he had against the Cardinals, where he had one sack, four hits, and three hurries, definitely making an impact. So this is a game where he could indeed break out, and I mean we saw it with Eric Armstead as well. This position, for whatever reason, just takes a bit of time to learn a bit more intricacies, get more moves on moves, and so it is not surprising that he started. A little kind of not, I, I would say, rough around the edges and is rounding out into form as the season goes on. Now, one of the other players that's playing next to him now that Eric Armstead is out is, of course, Ronald Blair. Ronald Blair was a podcast favorite, mostly because of his P-Spark score, and, and that was his athleticism score. One of the most athletic uh, defensive linemen slash linebackers slash people on defense that you're going to find around his positions. And his snaps have been steadily increasing since the bye He got 37 out of 77 possible snaps against the Patriots, and he's the primary sub-package defensive lineman uh, now that Armstead is out. Now, all that notwithstanding, is Ronald Blair actually playing good football? So I think he's been kind of, you know, just solid. Like, he hasn't really stood out. Like, he's been somebody that, you know, I I try to pay more attention to because, again, he was a... uh, a kind of a favorite of ours going into the year and, and, and after the draft process. Um, and it's been kind of exciting, like to see him get some more snaps and get some more opportunity there these last few weeks. Um, and, and I just don't think he's really stood out one way or another, right? It hasn't been a situation where he's been, uh, you know, kind of this fifth round pick that's clearly overwhelmed and is, is only really getting playing time due to injury. Like he hasn't looked like that player, but he also hasn't really, done anything overly positive right he's mostly getting in there right now in passing situations so you don't see a lot of uh run defense snaps from him right now 
And, you know, the pressure hasn't really been there. He's just kind of been okay. So, uh, again, this is another situation where I, I, I feel like because of the competition that he's going to be facing in, in this potentially very banged up offensive line for Miami, um, you know, I want to, again, continue to see what he can do. Like, he's a player that I think uh, is is pretty talented and can be used in a variety of ways. And I think uh, while I don't know that he's ever going to become and, you know, develop into this Pro Bowl, Pro Bowl caliber player that's, you know, kind of getting approaching double digit sacks or like anything crazy like that. Like, I think he is somebody that can be a very valuable rotation piece on your defensive line. Right. He's not going to be a starter necessarily, but he can come in you know, play like the, the 37 to 77 snaps, right? Play 40, 50% of the snaps and be able to make an impact in that limited sample. Um, and, and so hopefully we start to see some signs of what he can do this week. Now on the flip side of the ball, the 49ers are facing another top 10 defense. The Miami Dolphins come into this game with the sixth ranked defense overall based on DVOA. They are much better against the pass than they are against the run. They rank fifth against the pass, but they're still in the upper half of the NFL against the run, 14th overall. Is the 49ers offense going to see another slog fest where they might be able to keep it close for a quarter or two before they get blown out because the defense stiffens and their offense can't produce? Or are we going to see more of a game like we did against the Patriots where they're able to keep it close for two, three, maybe a little bit of the fourth quarter before eventually deciding the ultimate fate of the football game? I think the only way that it that it stays that close um, in, in this one um, throughout is if it tends to, if it ends up being like a more low scoring sort of thing, because I, I do think the 49ers offense is going to struggle a bit in this game. Um, you know, they're I don't think that they'll be able to run the ball very well, as has been the case. And, um, you know, this is a situation where with this defense has been very good against the pass. And I, I think the 49ers are going to have some difficulties sustaining drives. I mean, They've been one of the worst offenses in football this year on third down. They've actually been pretty good on first down. Um, and then things just kind of decline with each passing down. Uh, and, and when you get to third down so far, they've been 30th uh, in, in offensive DVOA on third downs. The Dolphins this year have been first in third down defense. So uh, and then you look at specifically the passing game splits within that. The 49ers dropped to dead last. Uh, by DVOA and the Dolphins are still at second. So I think if if this is a situation where things go as they've been going, where you know things aren't super consistent early on and, and they end up with a, with some long third downs, they're just not going to be able to sustain these drives against this defense because Miami's been so good at getting off the field uh, and kind of preventing exactly that sort of thing. Is this going to... So let's get to our predictions then. Do, do you think that this game is going to end up with... At, feeling and looking more lopsided than the Patriots game. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised just because it's, it's on the road, you know, it's uh, which has been an area where the 49ers struggle even a little bit more than normal. Um, I, you know, I don't know because I don't know that the, the dolphins have been playing well. And, you know, I mean, they, this, there, there are some things that are very impressive about them. I think they're what, like sixth or seventh in overall DVOA right now, um, which is a bit surprising for a team that's six and four. So I, you know, I think that they, especially considering you've got the Houston Texans that are also six and four and are like 30th in DVOA. Yeah. I mean, they're really, <laughs> really bad. Uh, <laughs> and so like, I, I, I don't know that they're quite good enough to, to pull away. Like, I, I, I don't know that I believe in them as a team that much to really 
uh, kind of come in and and uh, and blow them out. But at the same time, like uh, at least when you look at you try to try to look at this matchup, like it doesn't look good for the Fort Niners. It's hard to see them finding many areas where they have an advantage. So um, I don't know. I think right now the spread uh, is at eight points. And I think that's going to be probably pretty clear. I, I think the Dolphins manage late to to kind of push that to double digits. Um, so I think for me right now, I would probably lean something in the neighborhood of like 24 to 13, you know, seems like what this game might end up being. Yeah, the catch is always that they cover, right? Uh, I, I think the money, the money is on them covering. I think they're beginning to I think Miami is going to be one of those teams that makes that late season push and ends up with 10 wins and maybe even 11 and and wins that division and and goes on to, wins to do the whatever division. you think they're going to beat out New England for that division I think it's going to be close man and I think it's going to be close just because of the way all the divisions are are kind of unfolding so if you look if you look at the standings right let's look at the standings and let's look at Miami's schedule because I think the schedule has a lot to do with it so let's go to I mean, yield. Yeah. So, so Miami right now is two games back, but they're effectively three games back because they've already lost new England in week two. Um, yep. and you have what, six games to play. Like, yeah. even if they were to win out, you have to look at new England's schedule and say, where are they going to lose three games? I am just going to just literally throw it all out there and be like, yeah, why the hell not? Let's have some fun. <laughs> I mean, so New England's schedule here is uh, they got the Jets yeah, coming up, the Rams, win, Ravens, win. Broncos. The Ravens will be an interesting one because the Ravens defense is damn good. Their defense keeps them in a lot of games. Yeah, Ravens, same thing for the Broncos. The Broncos, very good defense. Uh, then you get the Jets again and then the Dolphins at the end. Um so really, you're you're saying that out of those five games leading up to that that uh, finale there against Miami, they would have to lose two of those yeah. games. Um, I, I can see them losing that Baltimore game. Don't see that happen. Maybe they slip up against one of those the the, the Baltimore the Denver game. Uh, I don't see there's any way that they lose three of their last six. Yeah, and then you've got Miami going up against Baltimore, uh, Arizona, the Jets. Buffalo and then New England. It's going to be a hell of a game, I think. At the very least, they get the wild card. Uh, you've talked me down off the ledge. I was going to go <laughs> throw my money on Miami Dolphins in Vegas, but whatever. Uh, you take all the fun out of football, David, with your reason and your logic. That's why I'm here. I'm over here trying. I'm over here trying to be like hot takes, and and you know what? Just stop pouring bacon soda on my grease fire. Uh, so let's <laughs> let's wow. let's then. So official picks. Then uh, we're both picking the Niners to lose. Uh, but the question is, do they cover the spread? So you're saying that that end up covering and they lose by a touchdown, but not by more than that. Yeah. I mean, I could think it's like a 24, 17 game, maybe, you know? Yeah. I should just try to not trust my instincts, but whatever. 538 says that the Miami Dolphins have an 81% chance of winning. And I would probably put that north of 1 million percent. <laughs> so what's the call to action on this week, David? Because we uh, we've covered a lot so far. Uh, oh, what do man. you think we should uh, um, we should cover here? I think we should do uh, in in honor of Garfinkel. Hashtag Garfinkel. Garfinkel, not Garfunkel. No, nope. not Garfunkel. Garfinkel. Garfinkel. Although, um, hey, some of the last week 
the story was, of course, the 49ers wedding crashers, right? Like the lowest caliber niner. Oh, yeah, some solid We got some there. really good ones, man. Yeah. We got Ahanu Uwezike. Good name. There's a name, really good name I haven't heard in forever. Uh, and, whoa, man, that was a good one. Um, we got some other good ones, man. It was really, it was some really, really good. Actually, a lot of names Niners. that I hadn't even really thought about in a very long time. Like, just I'm really, like, oh man. Well, I guess Whoa. thought about maybe sure, but like, there were a couple where I'm like, yep. That, oh, I like, mean, like, I, I, I immediately recognized who they were. It was just like, wow, I was like, maybe in high school the last time that I thought about that dude. Yeah, I mean, we got some Freddie Solomon. Um, we got like some randos like Earl Cooper or Mike Sherrard. That's from Brett. I don't even know who those players are. Not gonna lie. Cooper was, um, uh, I think, a, a running back in the early '80s, like early, early Montana years, if I remember right. Um, all probably true. I'm surprised no one threw out Bill Ring. Uh, Bill Ring was like that one white running back on the Niners in like the early '80s. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was good. You got. We had a Ken Dorsey shout out. Um, Isaac Sopoaga, Andre get, Carter. Get Ken Dorsey out of my wedding, man. Ken Dorsey can't come crash the wedding. Get him the hell I mean, out of here. Uh, yeah, we Ken got Dorsey Vernon like, Davis as Captain you, Torpedo. Like, were you peaked in college, all right? Like, get out of here. <laughs> and, of course, the pride of, of El Salvador, Jose Cortez. Um, no. No. That's gonna, he's going to go ahead and get pointed out. We don't have that's, enough that's no Cuervo count. for you. No, not at all. Uh, well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Better Rivals podcast. You can always find us on the Twitters. You can find me at Better Rivals, David where can they find you in case I want to send you that hate mail after all? Yeah, all, all the Raiders fans, uh, follow me at uh, David Newman with an underscore. And two N's. Don't and forget two N's. two N's when you're sending It's in. really not yeah. spelled That's, how you would expect you know, it. Yeah, not okay. Absolutely not okay. But uh, we hope you enjoy your holidays. Eat a lot of turkey. Stuff your face. Uh, and we'll be back next week to break down what we hope is at least the 49ers cover against the fighting Ryan Tannehill's <laughs> Wish me luck in College Station. David, wear your stretchy pants. And as always, go Niners. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.